Welcome to Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tema Frank. When I did my MBA many, many years ago, we talked about companies competing on either price, quality, or convenience. Now, when you think about a company like Mercedes, quality, of course, is what jumps to mind. But a few years ago, the company noticed that they were losing customers to what their engineers said was an inferior quality product. The reason, it turned out, was because the competitor was focusing on customer service. Yes, they had a quality product, maybe not as good as Mercedes, but they also made it really pleasant to deal with them. So the CEO of Mercedes decided it was time they had to excel on the service dimension as well. Today's guest is Joseph Michelli, the author of a book called Driven to Delight, which is about the transformation that Mercedes went through. Now, even if your company doesn't have the huge resources of a Mercedes, there is a lot you can learn from this interview. Before we get to it, though, there's been a lot of interest in last week's episode about a restaurant that was on the brink of collapse and was turned around based on a customer experience focused strategy. So if you haven't heard that one, I'd suggest you uh, go back after you listen to this one and check out frankreactions.com forward slash 80 or just subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. You can also download the transcript there from that or any other interview for those of you who would rather speed read than listen. I know I sometimes prefer that approach. I do a bit of both, to be honest. And one final thing before we leap into today's interview, if you're going to be in Edmonton on September 7th, let me know and I'll send you an invitation to the official launch party for my book, People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. You can reach me at tema at frankreactions.com. That's T-E-M as in marketing A. And just let me know that you think you might be able to make it. And I would be absolutely thrilled to see you there. So let's get right into the interview and I will chat with you briefly at the end. I am Joseph Michelli and I am the customer experience officer for the Michelli experience. And I've been doing this thing called customer experience improvement since before it was called customer experience, uh, working at customer service in one dimension or another in businesses uh, throughout my career. Well, I can relate to that. Uh, I remember even uh, doing user experience work before I knew it was called user experience. <laughs> you know, it's so. embarrassing how long I've been doing this because I, I remember days when we scripted everything in customer service and we measured customer sat, but we really didn't care how the outcomes were because nobody was paying much attention. It was just one of those nice things to do. And Joseph, in your research, do you see, I mean, a lot of companies are paying lip service to really not just doing the script, but to really caring about customer experience. How many do you think are going beyond lip service? Oh my gosh, it's, you know, we're right now just screening out uh, people who reach out to us and they've got a customer service initiative and, and uh, you know, it's the year of the customer and you go, well, what was last year, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think there, if you look at the numbers, it's clear that a lot of people have it as a strategic priority. When it gets down to the execution, it's also not happening. So if you just juxtapose 
you know, some of the, the research that's saying up, up to 90% of major corporations now have it as a strategic priority, customer experience improvement. And then you look at what things, you know, like the American Customer Satisfaction Index. We're not even satisfying customers. It's, it's reaching a nine-year low now. So it's pretty clear to me that there's a lot of aspiration and a lot of lip slapping, but there's not, and I, and I even think sometimes there's an effort. It's just not holistic and it is not strategic. It's not an enterprise wide phenomena yeah yeah that's certainly my impression too and i think we are both in our own ways trying to change that um and i you know it it does it's difficult and part of what interests me in the companies that you've profiled and including your latest latest in driven to delight with mercedes-benz story is seeing a large organization and what goes into trying to make a radical change at a large organization and particularly one that already considered itself high quality best of the best so can you talk a little bit about what happened at mercedes-benz and and why they felt that just being the top product quality wasn't good enough anymore so i i came to know this brand i uh i was asked to meet with the ceo and actually put together a roundtable discussion you know looking at some of the best of the best deliverers of customer experience so literally i was calling up uh, leaders over at the ritz carlton hotel company and calling up people over over at zappos and we all got together and had a roundtable discussion with the ceo of mercedes-benz usa who had recently been appointed to that position, and he had concluded that as great as the product was, that the experience was not living up to the product. And more importantly, he knew that as the distribution arm of Mercedes-Benz here in the United States, he didn't make the cars and really couldn't affect the product quality much. So all he really could do was influence this distribution channel of dealers to somehow or another up their game and treat people better when they walked into the showroom or walked into the service lane. So that was really where it came from. And, And what I can tell you, it was all hands on deck. It was all about, you know, we are claimed to be the best or nothing in the marketplace and we're number 22 in the J.D. Power survey. We better dang well get off our rear and mobilize every single part of this organization and try to get the dealer body to mobilize every single person to delight every customer every time. No excuses. Well, and that's a really interesting thing because you said he realized he couldn't affect the quality of the vehicles. But of course, he didn't directly control the dealers and what went on in the dealerships either. So there was a level of education and persuasion that had to happen there. Well, I think that's the key. I mean, it really, it all comes down to people in the end, right? I mean, people make processes, people make decisions about technology integration, but it all comes down to people. We're in a, all business is personal in the end. And I think the customer experience movement is appreciating that the person who calls the shots increasingly is the customer. And if you don't figure them out, their wants, needs, desires, motivations, pain points, all of that, and, and deliver against those expectations and exceed them, you're not going to be in business no matter how grand your product may be because over time, the differentiation of benefits and attributes of your products are going to diminish to competition, but no one's going to replicate that ability to drive a consistent emotional outcome in the life of the customer. And that's the really interesting thing because, of course, customer experience, I think, is it's extremely difficult to get it right, but if you do get it right, it gives you this huge competitive advantage because so few 
can copy it effectively. Amen. And and all the more reason for people to keep listening to your podcast, right? I mean, and, and reading your books. And, because, and reading your books. <laughs> and, and, and understanding the user friendliness of their websites and all the things that you spend your life helping them do, because without that structure, support and full on commitment in this space, I think you are going to be an afterthought. No matter how good you are today, you will be an afterthought in the market of tomorrow because we are in the experienced consumer age. And, uh, you know, it's, it's time. Mercedes-Benz was uh, a little bit ahead of the year of the customer, um, and they they totally got this. But still, it must have been pretty tough for him to convince the board, the senior executive, that it was worth investing, and they invested a lot of money in this. Oh, yeah, and I think a lot of it came from, I mean, he it was just a clear understanding and vision on his part of the criticality of doing this as a differentiator. But I, ultimately, Mercedes had to throw down a goodly amount of money at the corporate level, but they also had to get the dealer body to be willing to give up some things financially in order to derive what was a promised benefit. And the promised benefit was you're going to increase your engagement of customers, you're going to increase your loyalty, it's going to be easier to do business with them, and the cost of doing business would go down. And so all of that has manifest in time, but I think it's a hard sell for a lot of uh, kind of forward thinking people who might be encountering a lot of resistance from show me the money first. And a lot of this is a trust game. I think you have to leverage a, a great deal of research is out there that shows truly if you are affecting uh, delivery against the needs of customers, if you're making it easier for customers, and if you happen to be pleasing them on top of it, you are more profitable overall. And, and the data is there in so many industries that I think it'd be hard to fight it today. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, and one of the things that I, I do find very interesting about this particular case study, in, in, in my book, People Shock, I talk about outsiders with outsized influence. And that includes people like distributors who, you know, whether it's a car, an auto distributorship where I guess it's really obvious that they're working through them, but even retailers who have, or consumer goods manufacturers who work through retailers, those relationships become really important and getting them to represent your brand the way you want it represented is really important. And I find it fascinating that something like auto dealerships still have this situation where most people really hate going there. <laughs> Why wouldn't they get this automatically? Yeah, I, I think, well, you know, there's two phases to the automobile, automobile dealer experience. There's the buying the car, which is like falling in love and honeymoon and all of that, right? And then there's the servicing your car. Um, and it's pretty hard to get really excited about bringing your car in for you know, <laughs> routine maintenance or worse yet, unscheduled, you know, repair. So, you know, it is an interesting world that they live in. And, and yet, you know, it's been driven by a, a J.D. Power mindset. And I don't have anything against J.D. Power, believe me. But a lot of this comes down to a specific kind of survey about satisfaction that everybody seems to, you know, put their hopes against and a lot of bragging rights are associated with. So rather than really organically looking at what customers want, need and desire and try to fix against that, they're all just competing against the same scorecard 
And, you know, you have those, you have those situations where people literally say, you know, I need fives on the survey or my kids won't eat. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think that that's the kind of stuff that in sometimes holds a brand or a whole of an industry back instead of mm-hmm. causing them to think about, well, let's, that's good. That'll be a, you know, that'll be a lagging indicator of whether or not we're satisfying people or not. But let's really get down into the DNA of our experience to figure out how in real time can we measure against it. And that was a big part of the the leverage point for Mercedes. Uh, once they stopped worrying about J.D. Power and they start worrying about real time metrics of customer engagement, then their J.D. Power scores went up. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you just keep chasing this lagging indicator, you might get a little lift for a while while everybody puts all their focus on one part of the experience, and then that goes away and you chase another you know issue of the day. Well, what I really loved was the fact that, and, and you've just kind of hinted at it here, they were not trying to compare themselves to the best in the auto industry. They're saying, we want to be the best in customer service, period, regardless of industry. And I think that was a really good point. For, for a long time, you're going to get process improvement experts coming in, and they're going to stop at your dealership, and they're going to go across the street and stop at the dealership of another brand, right? So really, you're all just smelling the same vapor trails, trying to figure out how do we get a little bit better incrementally. It wasn't designed from the customer perspective, which is, you know, really, what are our customers telling us? I mean, right now in car buying, so much of this is done online and lead generation from websites that then set up appointments and people just come in to do the test drive and want to sign the deal 30 minutes later because they've researched everything online they possibly could. It's a very different experience than in my day when, you know, we would have been, we would have endured hours of grueling negotiation and terrible things happening inside of the dealership. It was, it was dentistry. Uh, <laughs> please don't drill me again with that. You know, so I, I think things have changed a lot. And, and so they had to go out of industry. What is the Ritz Carlton doing? How are they creating a hospitality experience? And what do we need to leverage from the hospitality industry? What are the best IT companies doing in terms of their online shopping experience so that we can develop that and become facile in that part of the customer journey. So how did they, I mean, there have to, has to have been a fair amount of cynicism or skepticism inside the organization, particularly from the product side and the engineering side. How did they overcome that? Well, I I mean, I think there's, you know, these, this will always be a very product dominant world. There are gearheads and there are gearheads and people really get into the minutia of fine engineering. I, I never quite understood it, but that will never go away. <laughs> it is at the core of the brand. It what is what made them excellence. It's why people, you know, they have a craveable product that people just want to go after. I think what they were starting to see is that other brands that they, even the engineers felt were subpar to their excellence. Uh, that they were attracting a lot of customers away because the mm-hmm. in-store dealer experience was not matching up. You know, I, I spent a, a goodly amount of time talking about Lexus in the book, only in that, you know, Lexus really was founded on a principle around customer manifestos and universal customer experience. It was designed to create a better experience than the multi-generation Mercedes dealers in the United States were delivering. Um, most of the engineers I would talk to in the German side would tell you the Japanese did not have the product. And I don't really want to get into it. I can't analyze that. But I do know that the quality of the Lexus experience for the longest time was pulling people away that these engineers at Mercedes thought should never leave the brand, right? So clearly, you needed to have an experience that matched the quality of your engineering, and you needed to take some of your engineering genius and engineer a customer experience 
that was going to keep them in the cars. Right. That makes sense. So they really saw a threat. They saw that they were losing business because of that variable. And I think they just didn't know how much more they could be losing, you know, how much more they could gain back if they really got this right. And and so a lot of it was to bring people back in who may have gone, who may have bought, bought a Mercedes, but then serviced it outside of a certified Mercedes dealership. How do we get them back in the dealership? So how did they do that? What sorts of things did they do to get people back? Well, I, I think some of the, the effort was really to bounce back to people and say, come on in and try our service. Here are some perks and spins. That was done on the premise that they had the experience fixed, right? Right. Uh, and so it, I think they waited before they tried to get people back in. Um, but they certainly did go back out to market with some of the folks that they know they lost and try to lure them back in with incentives, knowing that they had a better experience to encounter upon arrival. And the great thing, of course, is they would have their contact info. So that part's good. Absolutely. But, you know, you have to have money to do this. And so they also, you know, they reinvested money from things they might have done in the past that weren't really adding value in ways that now when you do come in, you're likely to have a more valuable experience. Now, you gave an example of that in the book. Can you talk about that? Here's an, here's one of those sort of, you know, aha moments when you do touchpoint mapping and you start analyzing where does value come from and what adds value and what's just been here forever. Um, but for the longest time, if you owned a Mercedes car, uh, you got roadside assistance in the United States. That You got that for life. I mean, I don't care if you bought that car third, third party owner, uh, you never serviced it, you went to a, a corner, you know, fast lube place to get it served. If your car broke down, on the way out of that fast lube place, Mercedes was obligated to, to do roadside assistance for you. And they looked at that and they said, you know, that, that is adding absolutely no value. We have no relationship with this customer. They're driving our brand, but they're not in relationship with us. Let's take that money and not provide that service unless you have had some kind of regular relationship. But let's instead, all the money we were wasting on people who were not in relationship with us, let's use it somewhere else. So, if you are in relationship with us and something goes wrong with your car, let's create a program called MB Select where we give the dealer's authority to spend up to $1,000 for you to do some kind of customer recovery or mm -hmm. to enhance your experience. Let's use the money wisely with people that actually are, pro you know, create profit for us as a business. Mm-hmm. Was there a backlash when they took away that service or they grandfathered people who already had it? No, there was definitely a backlash. And some of the backlash <laughs> was from the dealers who kept thinking, well, if we did roadside assistance, maybe we'll get some of those people back into our dealership and get to you know, work with them again. And so they had to make a concession that said, if you want us to tow your car back to a dealership, then you can have roadside assistance with us and we'll re-engage a service experience with you. But if, Which makes if, sense. If you just really expect us to come over and then tell you to your uncles, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily what we want to do. It doesn't make any sense for us from a business perspective. So there were tweaks to make sure that the dealer community was supported as well as the customer. The, the, you know, I, I, Drucker said it best. He said, we're not in business to, you know, to create a profit. We're in business to create a customer. But I think we're in business to create a profitable customer, too. So, <laughs> yes. You know, it's not just about, you know, treating everybody, at, you know, with this notion that we're going to take care of you cradle to grave. We need to be selective and, and create value for everyone. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is Mercedes is a premium brand. Uh, it's a company that had a lot of money to spend on this. How would this translate to much smaller brands that don't have 
the premium positioning and therefore don't have the kind of margins that would let them do some of these outstanding things? Well, I think, you know, the, the more, the more uh, financially solvent a company, the more likely they are to have money to invest in experts to help them. Fortunately, <laughs> we live in the world uh, where most of this stuff is available at some level or another online. Um, mm-hmm. you're not, if you haven't touch point mapped your customer journey, there are 5,000 videos out there on how to do it. You may not mm-hmm. have an expert uh, who helps you do it at a high level of nuance, but you can get enough of a map then that you could better appreciate your customer touch points and look at places where you can take away pain or improve the overall experience. I think that's fairly easy to do. I think you can survey your customers with tools like SurveyMonkey if you're not trying to get some kind of data from your customers that you can leverage uh, to enhance the experience. There, I think there are so many self-help, do-it-yourself tools out there that that is not the excuse to not <laughs> genuinely invest in it. The, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and I, at the end of the day, what you invest in is probably what you get return off of if you invest wisely. This is one of those things that if you're not investing in, you'll pay a price in the end. So why do you think so few companies are really investing in it? I mean, you know, Mercedes had to recognize that they had to change almost like so much in their organization. They had to look at what I call the three P's of promise people and process. They had to make changes in all those different areas. That's a pretty massive thing. And yet they saw that clearly there was going to be benefit to it. Actually, I think there's two levels to why people aren't doing it. One is that some are trying, they just don't know how, and they're just siloing. And I I give some credit to those people. Some are so daunted and overwhelmed by the sheer prospect of what does it mean to improve a customer experience? It sounds like boiling an ocean, right? Yeah. So trying to make it smaller, bite-sized pieces for yourself – and yet have a comprehensive long-term plan. Uh, that's the key here, I think, ultimately, is what is what are we going to try to do by year 2020? And in the meantime, what can we do realistically in the year 2016, between now and end of year, as it relates to my world slightly different, people, process, and technology is the world I live in, but, you know, we're on the same basic bandwidth here. Yeah. What are we going to do to move the needle through our people and through our processes to make life for our customers And again, I focus on three things always. How do we meet our customers' stated and unstated needs? So it's about need fulfillment. And then the next level up I look at is how do we make it easier to do business with us? And then the final phase I look at is along that journey, is there anything we can do to make it a little more pleasurable? I often talk about it as be a little more nice. You know, (laughs) it's, it's that what is that little extra thing we might do to add some pleasure along the transactional journey. And and I think every brand can can set up some objectives for 2016, 17, 18 and look and and measure it against people process and technology. Well, and sometimes that little extra bit of pleasure doesn't have to be expensive. I remember interviewing um a pet food company and one of the things they did is when they sent out an order, it was an online only place, they would send a cookie for the person who had ordered, like a human cookie as opposed to a dog cookie. It is so fabulous, right? I mean, like, yeah. they stand out in a world Absolutely. of barely get the dog cookie to you. Yeah, exactly. And it is less about how much you spend. It is more how kind you are and thoughtful in the delivery of that thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's really the end of the day. I just, I'm about to fire a professional I work with who I think is amazingly competent, but I don't think he cares. He doesn't care about me. 
right? And he right. cares for me just fine. He just doesn't care about me. If he, if someone would have taught him to care about people along with caring for them, we, we would be in relationship tomorrow. But, you know, probably today it's over. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of what they had to do at Mercedes and what any organization has to do involved education and training of staff and of distributors staff. Reading the book, it's almost like, sounds like brainwashing. Here's oh, our yeah. new mission and let's yeah. get everyone obsessed with it. I think in my book on Ritz Carlton, I said there's a fine line between cult and culture, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it is a lot like brainwashing into a cult. I mean, just when you think you've messaged it enough, you probably need to message it some more. I mean, at Mercedes, it was around listen, empathize, add value, and delight, which was an acronym for lead. And it yeah. was really saying everyone must lead every time. And so are you listening actively? Do you really understand what empathy is? I mean, can you create hypothesis about possible emotional states of another human? Um, can you, are you adding value? Cause if not, don't pick up a paycheck here. I mean, it's your universal reason to be is to add value to the supply chain of a service of a customer. Um, and then ultimately, can you do that one little thing? And it doesn't cost a lot. Just if it's smile, if it's welcome back, if it's showing extra energy to serve again, it, it doesn't really, you know, so we just, that, that just kept going and going and going. And frankly, what I'm most pleased about is they didn't change that to another acronym every year. And, yeah. and they just added more advanced training on advanced add value, advanced delight, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that's been a critical part of their success. Did they have to fire any senior people who just couldn't buy in? I think they invited them to work somewhere else. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> I think obviously your life purpose and our life purpose are not in alignment, and we care about delighting customers. And yeah, I'm sure there's someone who cares about you, and will take your talents and use them. Yeah. Is there anything about the Mercedes experience in particular that you think all companies should be taking to heart? Yeah, there's several. I mean, I think they did a fabulous job when they created their vision because you have to get a lot of buy-in for people kind of to seed the ground to get this thing moving with some speed. And I think they created a vision of what the future was going to look like. They created a, a mantra. They internally branded this customer experience initiative as driven to delight within the organization. All of that, I think, was brilliant. And they not only created the vision in a word picture, but they actually created a visual of it. I work with lots of companies now to do the same thing. So I think it's important to say we are driven to delight. This is what the destination looks like. It's articulated in words, but also create imagery uh, and video around what that looks like. So they did a lot of that. Um, the other things I think are really important is they did map the customer journey. So it's pretty, you know, pretty critical to get a sense of your customers' interactions from the customer's vantage point. They put measuring points in and got voice of customer at key moments of truth along that journey and leveraged that data in real time to improve things for that individual customer, but also look for opportunities for process improvements. And then I think beyond that, the, the, the keys here is leadership training, cultural immersion, and a lot of metrics that link performance on customer journey to, you know, profitability of individuals. And I think the more you can measure and reward and recognize people for greatness uh, in customer experience, the more likely it will be a part of the DNA of your organization. So to me, that's the secret sauce. They did it well, and thus they went from 22nd in J.D. Power a few years back to, to the top flight, you know, number one and, and, and or competing for that position routinely now. You talked about tying it to metrics, but 
how do you avoid then the phenomenon that I'm sure we've all come across, including when I bought my latest car, which was not a Mercedes, not in that snack bracket, um, but of the employee who sold it to you begging you to give them a 10 so they don't get punished? Yeah, I think that the metrics can't be quite that, you know, that draconian, right? I mean, and, and also I think you have to change the metrics up. And I don't think it's a metric only in a lagging indicator like that. I yeah. think it is a lot about spot spot metrics. It's about sending you a text message today saying, did you get everything you needed from your service? Yes or no. You can hit yes. And yeah. if you hit no, having an, an action on the backside of it. And then, yeah. and, you know, not only rewarding people for getting all yeses, but how well they handle the breakdowns and the, you know, I think it's, you gotta just be smart with numbers. I mean, if you use the same ruler all the time, of <laughs> course people are gonna try to perform against that ruler. But if you make it a more dynamic process that's relevant to what you need to do for your customers and get people excited about performing and achieving those things and, and what it means for people instead of numbers, yeah, it works, but I, you're right. I think there are a lot of people who just use the same number, same challenge, and it's hard to get people excited to chase a number. Do you think it's possible to really transform an organization to focus on customer experience without CEO totally pushing it and buying in? I wrote it. I wrote a manifesto on the importance of a CEO to this whole process. <laughs> so, you know, I've got a little bit of a, a bias that thinks that it really is pretty dang critical. That said, you know, it's a great excuse to not doing a lot, right? I mean, for me, yeah, it's so much easier. But if you don't have them on board, learn how to move the needle in spite of that as much as you can. And then if you can't ever really tip the, if you can't lead up, then you may want to, you want to go somewhere else yourself. This is where you fire the company because, yes. right? But, but if you're really good at this and you make progress on it and you can show some KPI improvements in spite of the CPO, CEO's support, there is someone wanting to hire you tomorrow. Um, yes. you know, there are organizations that I'm involved in that you just look at the action on their, their job board. It's high for people who are creating organizational change in the area of customer centricity. Do you have any advice on breaking down silos within large organizations so they will co collaborate more on this sort of thing? Well, I think that, that if you can do the mapping and you can come up with some pain points that involve multitudes of locations and then you create metrics that are around sharing and succeeding mm -hmm. in the gaps, that's where it becomes successful. So, for example, um, you know, working in a car dealership where you want to get people handed over from the sales process into your service process – it wasn't until we were able to hold up some of the financial incentives to the salesperson, so they didn't necessarily get their commission until they had a warm handoff of the person over to the service department. Right? It was that gap where the customer got lost mm -hmm. that uh, we had to incentivize, and you know, I guess you could say penalize maybe, but at least incentivize the handoff. Instead of celebrating success in the silo, which is, waha, we sold the person. I can, I'm great. So what if we lost the customer after that? It was much mm -hmm. about, did the customer have a seamless transition from sales to service? And, um, well, I think that's how you do it. You just really start looking at how do we incentivize collaboration across the gap? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. Well, we're pretty much out of time. Is there anything you wish I had asked you and I haven't? No, I am so grateful for who you are and what you do. And I am excited about our shared journey on helping people, you know, make sure they, they take care of their customers as best they can. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you and I hope we get to meet in person at some point. 
My pleasure, and I, I hope the same. Well, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can all take out of this interview. One of them is, of course, that product quality alone is just not going to keep you in business anymore. You need to match that with an experience that people will pay a premium for. It's not all just about the quality. Second is that you can find money for customer experience improvements by taking a closer look at what are the things that we're doing right now that maybe aren't actually adding all that much value to the customer experience. And by stopping doing some of those, you can free up some funds that you can use elsewhere to enhance the experience. Also, looking through your procedures and processes, you'll often find ways that you can be more efficient and effective internally that will improve the customer experience and at the same time free up some funds. And thirdly, I I liked his three key questions of one, how do we meet our customers stated and unstated needs? Two, how can we make it easier to do business with us? And three, is there anything we can do along that journey to make it a little bit more pleasurable? So things to keep in mind as you move forward. That's all we've got for today. Again, as uh, always, I would love to hear from you and I'd love to get your suggestions for who you'd like me to interview or what specific topics you'd like to learn more about as I plan the fall season. If you haven't yet picked up your copy of the new book, People Shock, I would encourage you to do so. Of course, I'm rather biased on that one. But if you send me your receipt from that purchase, I would be happy to send you a free electronic copy or to send it directly to someone who you think needs to hear the message. Just send an email to me, Tema, T-E, Amazon Marketing A, at frankreactions.com, and I will get that rolling for you as long as you send me a copy of the receipt. That's all I've got for today. I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Bye. Bye.